We praise Thee, O God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And we acknowledge that Thy mercies are new every morning. That we are surrounded by Thy grace, Thy loving kindness, and Thy providence. Open our eyes that we may see the chariots on a thousand hills. That Thy protecting hand is ever with us so that we need not fear nor be afraid. For Thou, Lord, art ever near, and Thou wilt never leave us nor forsake us. We thank Thee, our Father, that underneath all the experiences of life are Thine everlasting arms. And so we come again to cast our every care upon Thee, to commit ourselves into thine omnipotent hands and to hear thy word and to rejoice therein. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture is from the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And our subject, the covenant and the Lamb. Joshua 1, 1 through 9, the covenant and the land. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not dismayed, neither be thou dism uh, afraid. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. 
we have been dealing with the theology of the earth, of the land. And we have seen that an obvious but neglected fact of the Bible is that God's covenant with man is land-based. At the time of creation, God entered into a covenant with man. Man was given stewardship over the Garden of Eden, which was to be a pilot project for the whole earth, that there man might learn the pattern and apply it. But when man fell, this calling was not set apart, set aside. The covenant was renewed with Noah. Again it involved the earth, and it had a natural sign of the earth, a rainbow. Abraham was promised a specific portion of the earth and the whole earth to those who were his descendants by faith. The covenant made with Moses and Israel gave them the promised land. With Joshua, this promise was renewed in the little commission which we just read. And the great commission given by our Lord, which is a summary of this commission to Joshua, the commission is extended to all the earth. The church entered the world as the covenant people with the covenant law. They had a calling. It was in terms of the whole earth. All nations, all men, the whole of the earth. Through the generations, the church saw this aspect of its calling. When we read Aquinas, we find that he attacked antinomianism vigorously and affirmed the covenant, the law of God. Luther has been invoked by many antinomians because of his grace-only position. So let us, for a few moments, examine Luther's position here. What very few people are aware of is that Luther wrote a tract entitled Against the Antinomians. It was addressed to Dr. Gaspar Boutel. And Luther wrote, and I quote, I assume that you received some time ago a copy of the disputations against the new spirits who have dared to expel the law of God or the Ten Commandments from the church and to assign them to City Hall. I never expected that such false spirituality would occur to the mind of man, much less that anyone would support it, unquote. Luther thus spoke out against the idea that the law and a concern with the land, a concern with legislation, belonged to civil government. He saw it primarily as a concern of Christendom, of the faith. He went on to say, and I quote, This doctrine is not mine. But St. Bernard's, what am I saying? St. Bernard's? 
It is the message of all Christendom, of all the prophets and apostles. Luther said, until now it has been uniformly the doctrine of the church. He could have added, except for heretical groups, none had ever affirmed antinomianism. He also said, and I quote, Does anyone imagine that there can be sin where there is no law? Whoever abolishes the law must simultaneously abolish sin. For according to Romans 5.13, Where there is no law, there is no sin. And if there is no sin, then Christ is nothing. If a man permit the law, a sin to stand, he must also certainly permit the law to stand. Unquote. Luther said that people who became so spiritual they abstracted themselves from the world around them, from the earth, from politics, from economics, were looking for a sweet security, he said, which most certainly, he went on to add, will sink them gently into hell. So, he said, the law must be preached wherever Christ is to be preached. And he added, and I quote, to preach grace first and then mention God's wrath later and to omit the law is contrary to Scripture. Unquote. Now, antinomianism sets in when people forget the religious dimensions of the physical creation, of the earth around us, when the land is left out of the faith. Little by little, everything else is left out of the faith, except an empty spirituality. One of the things that marked this country in its early years that was was that whenever a community was established, before it was established, a covenant was drawn up. Men gathered together, and only those could settle in the township who became a part of the covenant. To give you an example of a covenant, which is only about a hundred years old, the signers promised, and I quote, in love to watch over one another, and by all means in our power to promote the honor of Christ and the peace and happiness of the whole church, unquote. This was the United States a century ago, and I'm sure examples could be found since then, into the late years of the last century, when communities were established in new areas as people settled and all came together and signed a document agreeing to abide by the every word of God, to be a covenanted people. The sad fact is that in this century the covenants continued on radically different grounds. 
they became racial covenants. Entering into covenants, and the old covenants were dropped, new ones substituted. But this area will be restricted to whites or to Protestants or to some particular group. And then finally, covenants were struck down by the Supreme Court. The covenant deteriorated sadly from a matter concerned with the faith to a matter concerned with race. But in the process, while these covenants, which became racially restrictive, something else happened in that most of the covenants which were religiously oriented gave way to another concept. From seeking the glory of God and binding one another to an obedience to the every word of God and to love one another in Christ and to seek the glory of his kingdom, men began to replace the covenant doctrine with a concept of seeking together the common good. And the common good was humanistically defined. At first, the realization of the common good was political. The country began a shift from theology to politics in its orientation. Covenants of a theological source and theological character began to disappear after 1860. Little by little, the political hope, which was already dominant with politicians, began to permeate downward, and salvation was now identified with a political order. The modern era had been born with a rash of utopian books, visions of a non-Christian society, and salvation now came to be identified not as the regeneration of man, but of society. The political dream then began to change. It took on economic overtones. It was to be a politico-economic order. And, of course, Marxism has been the key expression of that. Salvation for all mankind by reordering the political order. In Scripture, the regeneration of all things begins with man's regeneration. The world fell because man fell. The process must be reversed. Man must be regenerated so that he can regenerate all things by applying the every word of God. God's covenant is with man. But it includes the earth, the whole earth. Deuteronomy 28 makes it clear that as man is, so too is the earth, either blessed or cursed. And the path to restoration 
must begin with the recognition that we are, whether we admit it or not, a covenant people. Man was created to be a covenant creature, and he is either a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker. There is no other choice. All assets are to be used, whether real, intellectual, or personal, to further our covenant lives and calling. Our Lord makes clear in Matthew 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Man cannot live without bread. Our Lord makes that clear. But neither can he live by bread alone. It must be the every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God which governs us. Now this is the heart of both commissions. They are land-based. In the lesser commission given by God to Joshua. What is required first of all of the covenant people is a radical faithfulness to the every word of God as the life of faith. In verses 7 and 8 we are told, Only be thou strong and very courageous. Thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Given this faithfulness, the Lord goes on to say, we shall be conquerors. Every place that the sole of your feet foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. Moreover, we are promised victory. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And again in verse 9, Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not dismayed. Neither be thou afraid. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 30:15, In returning and rest, shall ye be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. The returning is to God's covenant grace and law. The word that is translated as rest means a settling, finding one's foundations, resting with security in something. In returning and rest shall ye be saved. 
Men must settle themselves and rest in God's covenant. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. We rest in God's covenant. In quietness and confidence we know that God's word is true. We take hands off our lives because we are established in him. To despise God's covenant means to move into dispossession. It means to move into conflict, judgment, and destruction. And as men have set aside God's covenant and made their own covenants, which Scripture tells us are always covenants with death, the world is moving into a suicidal era. It is self-destructing. It is becoming an area of increasing conflict and anarchy. The conflict will continue until men in terms of God's covenant require of themselves a total obedience to the every word of God, until they recognize that the covenant is land-based, that there is not an atom of creation that is outside of God's government and outside the requirements of his covenant, that we have a total God and we must have a total faith. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee that Thou hast made a covenant with us and confirmed that covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray that we may be by Thy grace covenant keepers that we might bring every area of life and thought into captivity to Christ, that we might establish thy dominion over the earth and ourselves, and that we might be a people whose righteousness exalts thee. Bless us to this purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. This is not a lesson. All right. Any lesson questions? Wait. Uh, in discussing Christianity with some people who are antinomians to the extent of believing that all one has to do is to love and one is a perfect Christian, the trouble with this, Christ said, love thine enemies. Now, what exactly do you say when a person says someone is sticking a knife in you and clubbing you to death? You must love it. And if this is all that's required, uh, I need a little more help on that. Love in the Bible, we are told very plainly in Romans 13, is the fulfilling of the law. Read Romans 13, 1 through 8. 
that to love someone means to respect his life, his home, his property, his reputation, and not to seek his harm by lawful or unlawful means. Love is the fulfilling, putting into force, literally, of the law. We cannot, therefore, say we love someone if we are lawless towards him. That which substantiates that is the fact that you hate, but a pure hate, too. Therefore, you do fulfill the law. Yes. I could hear what he said. I just, I just said that you hate with a pure hate, too. Is this, uh, that means that you fulfill God's law to the utmost. Therefore, you hate with a pure hate. Do I not hate them that hate thee? Yea, I hate them with a perfect hatred, the psalmist says. He doesn't say thereby that he's doing harm to anyone, but that he is representing the righteousness of God. If you don't hate injustice, there is something wrong with you. So, we have an obligation to hate that which is evil, but we have no right even towards an evildoer to do evil. We must love them, that is, keep God's law in relationship to them, because to love someone is to put God's law into force in relationship to them. Look at it this way. If I say I love someone on my terms, my terms are trifling. My standards are trifling. What am I giving to somebody if I claim I love them humanistically by my own light? Nothing good. But if I love them as God requires me to by keeping his law in relationship to them, then that's real love. It's manifesting what God requires of me, his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his peace, his law. Yes, John? Well, you know, I think probably the simplest answer I ever found to give to that question is the Lord says you love him, you don't have to like him. What was that? The Lord says you love him, you don't have to like him. Yes. Uh, I, I once did a study of the usage of the word love, and I could never find it ever in an emotional context. Yes. It's always in terms of actions done. And insofar as your neighbor is concerned, you can totally dislike the man. Absolutely and totally abhor everything he does. But you can still love him by keeping the law with him. Yes. Our Lord said, if ye love me, keep my commandments. That was it. Also, if somebody is doing you an injustice, or for instance, somebody comes up and tries to physically you call the police and you have justice done on him, yes. which is having him whatever brought before If you love a child, you chastise the child when he needs it. So if God says we are to keep his commandments to prove our love towards him, certainly it's the same standard towards our neighbor. We keep those commandments that deal with our relationship to our fellow men. Yes. Well, the majority of confusion seems to be, and I just had a friend of mine call me long distance and talk to me for an hour and a half night before I asked him just this problem. 
because he was having, he was carrying around this massive guilt burden. Because he said, John, he said, there is no way that I can love this man. And he says, and yet that's exactly what the scripture says. And I said, well, how do you define love? Well, that immediately got him into a world of problems because he couldn't define it. And I said, turn to the scripture, and I said, uh, Paul tells you, I said, the Lord himself tells you, love is fulfilling the law. And I said, what you're doing is you have adopted, without knowing it, you've adopted a humanistic, emotional concept of love, when in reality that's totally foreign to the scriptural definition. And he was carrying around this massive guilt burden because he says, there's no way I can love this. Well, what he meant by that was, there's no way I can like this man. And, 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 and I said, that isn't the point of biblical law. And when it was all over, why he suddenly realized what an incredible deception it was for Christians to adopt this emotional, subjective concept of love and, and what, a, what a death trap that was. And uh, he, he uh, it was very, very strange because he's been going through this problem for a number of years and he just never bothered to read the book. Yes, you see, with the rise of pietism, doctrine, first of all, was replaced with emotions, with experiences. You could uh, actually show a contempt for doctrine and say that that was for precisionists and for intellectuals, but you loved the Lord because you could emote very well and come up with a lot of pious gush and shed tears at the right time, and so on. Well, step by step, what pietism did was to substitute for the plain word of God humanistic and emotional definitions for everything, so that love has an emotional definition, forgiveness, which, which means charges dropped because satisfaction has been rendered, or charges postponed for the time being, has been given an emotional context, and so on and so on. So that doctrine has been eroded by pietism because it has redefined everything in emotional terms. And our politics has similarly been redefined. We look at politics now in terms of emotional uh, questions. How is this going to affect the old folks, you see? And we're supposed to bleed because we are more interested in a just law than expropriation to give something more to elderly people. And uh, the appeal in politics is precisely the emotional one. Would you buy a used car from this man or a used motorcycle, as we heard the other day? <laughs> yes. Is there any difference uh, in the concept of love in the New Testament as expressed by the, the two basic Greek words used? I mean, I always understood that one was more emotional than the other. Is, is this true? Well, the words in the Greek, there are three of which two are used. One is eros, erotic sexual love. Philio, which is brotherly love, as in Philadelphia. It is human love. 
And then there is uh, agape, which is almost like grace. It's the divine love, God's love for man reaching down. Now, none of these, neither of the uh, two terms, uh, phileo or agape, are antinomian as they are used in the Bible. And the context of both is with reference to the law of God. Neither is contrary to the law, both are in terms of the fulfillment of the law. Yes? Love is, uh, is the ultimate right now in our society where they disregard the law, but the law must come first because, as I used to explain to some of the students, that I could come into a room and grab a kid, throw him up against the wall, beat him half to death, and four or five students enter the room, grab me and pull me off and say, Mr. Edwards, what are you doing? And I say, there is no law against it. So they only make up their, their they go by the love first. They understand that that man is, is in pain, so they can feel a sympathy, a compassion for him. Mm-hmm. But the law must come first, and then the love will come. It, it can't work any other way. Mm-hmm. And uh, even the Christian, few Christians that are known who are educators uh, always put love way before the law. Some years ago, a social worker who sometimes uh, had some good sense to him uh, told me that uh, he had a very difficult time helping someone who did need help until he faced up to the fact he disliked him. And then he realized, I still have a duty to do in relationship to this man, and he proceeded on that basis, and things worked out beautifully, and the results were better than were routine for him. It was one of his best cases. But he realized it couldn't be personal. Yes, Otto? I think you've touched it. The argument seems to be that you have no right to dislike somebody. Yes. (laughs) And uh, that doesn't make any sense whatever. You have as much right to dislike as you have to like, and you have no reason to feel that you have to uh, rationalize the dislike or the liking. uh, The fact that you dislike is sufficient. You don't need evidence to support it. On the other hand, you have no right absolutely to be unfair to anyone. That's right. And if you can treat people with uh, justice, whether you like or dislike them is something that they should never uh, really be positive about. I remember that I had a, a writer on a magazine whom I disliked intensely and I promoted him several times <laughs> because he was very confident. Yeah. You write a paper on that. <laughs> <laughs> it got me in trouble with people who don't think I have a right to dislike. <laughs> Any other questions or comments?
Shane's input orders. Right. Any other questions or comments? Well, if not, let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord and our God, give us grace to take hands off our lives and commit them into thy care, to know that it is thy word, thy law, thy grace that is our sufficiency, that how we feel is not important, but our faithfulness to thee and our government by thy word is that which we must do. Make us movers and changers in thee, and grant that day by day we be changed and conformed more and more unto Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.